Good evening, I'm Martin Bang, and here are the shockers of the day. Pope quits the Vatican in 600-year first. Moorgate train forgets to stop, passengers last terminus. And Manchester bus drivers on strike, commuters long walk of despair. In other news, a man claims to have invented waterproof tea bags. That's the news, and remember, if it's not breaking, it's broken. Newsbang, a slice of truth in the heart of the matter. Attain the decided to 2013. Breaking news, this just in. The Pope has quit. Yes, you heard that right. The Supreme Pontiff himself, Benedict XVI, has hung up his hat and cassock for good. In a move not seen in 600 years, his Holiness announced he was fed up with all the nonsense and wanted to spend more time with his immortal soul. Elected in 2005 following the death of John Paul II, no relation to George or Ringo, Ratzinger took on the name Benedict, which translates as wily old German fox. The reasons for his resignation remain shrouded in mystery, but sources close to God say it may have something to do with him being 8,637 years old. Either way, we here at Newsbang wish him well as he becomes Pope Emeritente, Latin for one who sits around in comfy slippers. The Conclave of Cardinals will now convene on Tinder Vaticanus to swipe right on a new leader for Catholics worldwide. But there's no hurry. Apparently, they only need to agree on one who can dodge an unsharpened pencil before they're sorted. 1975. In 1975, as disco fever gripped the nation, one man decided to boogie all the way to work. His name? Leslie Newson, a.k.a. Newt. As he approached Moorgate Station on his trusty tube train, instead of stopping and letting off groovy commuters, Newt decided it was time for one last ride. The Northern City Line became the Northern City Tragedy as 43 people realised they should have stayed in bed that day. Eyewitnesses described scenes of carnage as mullets flew everywhere. One survivor, Dave Funkadelic, said, It was like Saturday night fever meets a clockwork orange. Another witness, Cheryl Discoball, added, I thought it was part of Greece until I realised my leg was missing. In hindsight, signs of Newt's unravelling were there. He often arrived at work on roller skates and refused to work weekends because he needed to stay in alive. An inquiry later found him responsible for the tragedy after police discovered his diary entry reading, Tonight I will stairway to heaven. He remains Britain's most wrecked driver. 2021 Bus drivers in Greater Manchester have walked off the job, leaving thousands stranded at bus stops across the region. This industrial action is in protest against proposed changes to their contracts by Go Northwest, an interstellar transportation company with a murky past. 500 disgruntled space pilots from Unite the Union are now on an 11-week strike, refusing to drive their double-decker rocket ships until demands are met. The impasse began when Go Northwest's new CEO, Lord Marquis Helter Skelter Esk, insisted drivers work longer hours for half the stardust and a box of broken solar flares as payment. Negotiations continue aboard the Planetary Employment Tribunal but trillion miles above Earth. Until then, weathermen predict continued asteroid showers with a chance of intergalactic warfare. 
News Bang, a tall glass of truth served with a twist of humour. Shakanaka Giles with your forecast of precipitation and persistence. Tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a drizzle that's as persistent as a door-to-door -door salesman. It'll be a bit like having a wet dog shake itself dry on your favourite coat. Moving on to the Midlands, where the weather will be as unpredictable as a toddler's mood swings. There'll be a mix of sunshine and showers, so keep your umbrellas and sunglasses handy. In the north, it'll be a bit nippy, with temperatures dropping faster than a politician's popularity. Expect snow flurries that will make the landscape look like a freshly dusted wedding cake. And finally, in Scotland, it'll be a right hoolie. Winds will be howling like a pack of wolves, so batten down the hatches and make sure your kilt is securely fastened. In summary, it's going to be a day of wet dogs, toddler tantrums, wedding cakes and wolves, and that's all the weather. Nineteen fourteen. We've stepped back in time to 1914, where the aftermath of the Balkan Wars saw the establishment of the Autonomous Republic of Northern Epirus by local Greeks in Albania. This region, predominantly inhabited by Greeks known as Northern Epirates, was the site of a newly formed republic, a direct result of the Balkan Wars that weakened the Ottoman Empire and set the stage for World War I. To delve deeper into this historical conundrum, we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable. This is my war, and I don't say that lightly. The men here, their faces streaked with blood and sweat, their uniforms tattered and torn, they are the living, breathing embodiment of war. And it's in the air, thick and palpable, like the smell of death that hangs over a battlefield. The smell of gunpowder, the smell of fear, the smell of hope. The air is alive with the sound of gunfire, the whiz of bullets, the thud of explosions. And through it all, the men fight on, their faces a mask of determination, their hearts filled with courage. And in the midst of it all, the flag of the Autonomous Republic of Northern Epirus, a symbol of hope and freedom, flutters in the breeze. The men here are fighting for that freedom for their right to exist as a separate entity, for their right to be recognized as a people. And as I stand here in the midst of the battle, I can't help but feel a sense of awe at the bravery and determination of these men. They are the true heroes of this war, and I am privileged to be here to tell their story. Brian Bastable, Newsbang, somewhere in the heart of the Autonomous Republic of Northern Epirus. Adieu. 1997. In a dramatic confrontation that has left Los Angeles in a state of shock, the North Hollywood shootout unfolded, involving two bank robbers, Larry Phillips Jr. and Emil Matassariano, in a fierce exchange of gunfire with the Los Angeles Police Department. The LAPD, the city's primary law enforcement agency, faced off against the heavily armed duo in the San Fernando Valley neighborhood, known for its cultural attractions and the Metro Rail Station. 
The hail of bullets and bloodshed left both robbers deceased, while numerous officers and civilians bore the brunt of the violent encounter. As the city grapples with the aftermath, Ken Shit brings us a special report on the North Hollywood shootout. Greetings, scumbags! As we blast back to the good old days of 1997, let's not forget the North Hollywood shootout that made the streets run red with blood and fear. Two heavily armed motherfuckers, Larry Phillips Jr. and Emil Matasarianu, decided to pull off the biggest bank heist in history. They were like two wild animals, frothing at the mouth and ready to tear apart anything in their path. They stormed into the bank, guns blazing, and took the place by storm. The Los Angeles Police Department, the finest law enforcement agency in the city, was called in to stop these two psychopaths. But it was like trying to stop a hurricane with a feather duster. The gun battle that ensued was like something out of Hollywood schlock. Bullets flew through the air like rain, shattering windows and sending civilians diving for cover. It was a scene of pure chaos and carnage. In the end, both robbers were killed, but not before numerous officers and innocent bystanders were injured. The North Hollywood shootout was a brutal reminder that sometimes, even the best can't win against the sheer force of evil. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that no matter how hard we try, there will always be darkness lurking in the shadows. Stay vigilant, my friends. 1874. The Tichborne case, a tale of a man falsely claiming the Tichborne baronetcy, enthralled Victorian England in the 1860s and 1870s. The imposter, however, failed to sway the courts and was convicted of perjury, serving a lengthy prison sentence. The Tichborne baronetcies, alas, have since become extinct. Hardam and Pesto now delves deeper into this fascinating saga. Martin, a peer in Victorian London where a sensational trial has gripped the nation. A butcher from Wagga Wagga in Australia has claimed to be the missing heir to the Tichborne baronetcy. He stands accused of perjury for assuming a false identity. The case has scandalized high society and divided public opinion. So this Aussie butcher is trying to pass himself off as English nobility? He must have some hide. What makes him think he can pull this off? Well, he claims that after being shipwrecked and rescued, he was too traumatized to remember his true identity. But many believe he's an imposter out to get his hands on the family fortune, including the dowager lady Tichborne, who took one look at his substantial girth and declared, That's not my Arthur, my. She'd know if he was the real deal. Has he convinced anyone besides himself? He has a number of supporters who call themselves Tichborneites and have raised funds for his legal defence. They've even got the music halls mocking up songs about the case. But the prosecution contends his knowledge of the family and events is patchy at best. He can't be very bright trying it on with a scam like this. No wonder they've hauled him into court. So will he convince the jury or end up in Chokey? Well, that remains to be seen, Martin. The case has kept society agog for months. If he pulls this off, he'll be dining on the Tichborne silver before the week is out. But if not, he'll be breaking rocks for Her Majesty and ruining the day he cooked up this crazy caper. Back to you, Martin. Let's hope he gets his just desserts. Thanks, Pesto. In a tragic incident reminiscent of a particularly explosive firework display, the USS Princeton, 
met an untimely end on the Potomac River. The ship, a marvel of American engineering, fell victim to a rogue cannon, resulting in the untimely demise of six souls and the injury of twenty more. The Potomac River, a major waterway in the mid-Atlantic region, bore witness to this unfortunate spectacle. As the river's waters flowed on, oblivious to the chaos, the USS Princeton's legacy was forever etched into its 14,700 square miles of drainage area. Now for a deeper dive into the human drama behind the headlines, let's hand over to our reporter, Melody Wintergreen. A river of tears flows down the Potomac today as the USS Princeton, a vessel of victory, becomes a ship of sorrow. The year is 1844, and the Princeton, a pride of the American Navy, has become a floating funeral parlor. The cause? A catastrophic cannon calamity. A gun named Peacemaker ironically turns Peacebreaker, exploding in a deadly display of iron and fire. Six souls are sent to Davy Jones's locker, 20 more wounded in this maritime massacre. Among the victims is Secretary of State Abel P. Upshur, and Secretary of the Navy Thomas W. Gilmer, their lives snuffed out like candles in a tempest. The shockwave shatters serenity, turning a leisurely cruise into a voyage of the damned. The air is thick with smoke and despair as sailors scramble to save their comrades from the icy grip of the Potomac. In this watery wasteland stands Captain Robert F. Stockton, his face etched with grief and guilt. He's the man who brought Peacemaker aboard, believing it would protect his crew, not pulverize them. His dream of naval supremacy sinks to the riverbed along with his comrades. And then there's President John Tyler, who narrowly escapes death by choosing to stay below deck during the fatal firing. His relief is palpable but tainted with tragedy as he mourns his fallen friends. So here on the Potomac, amid splintered wood and shattered dreams, we bear witness to an event that will echo through history. A day when peacemakers became peacetakers and heroes were born from horror. As we sail into an uncertain future, one thing remains clear. This is one river cruise that's taken a turn for the worse. Melody Wintergreen reporting for Newsbang on this day in history where peace was broken on the Potomac. News bang, the truth unvarnished and unvarnished. And now, for a glimpse into the world of sports, specifically focusing on the fledgling days of a now legendary football club, we turn to Ryder Boff, a man who knows his football as well as he does his ascots. Ah, the year is 1904, and what a time to be alive. The air is thick with the scent of industry and progress. And on the Iberian Peninsula, a football club by the name of SL Benfica has been hatched in Lisbon as Sport Lisboa. It's like watching your child take their first steps, except this child can kick a ball better than most. Football, that splendid team sport where 11 chaps on each side chase after one modestly sized sphere, it's all about guiding that cheeky little leather-bound devil into the gaping maw of the opposing team's netted sanctuary. And let me tell you, these Benfica lads have taken to it like ducks to breadcrumbs. They're competing in what they call the Primera Liga. Sounds exotic. And word on the cobblestones is they've already nabbed themselves a shiny champion's title. Imagine that! Barely out of their sporting nappies and already taking home silverware to mama. 
I remember my own days playing for Upper Tidlington Rovers back in 82. What we lacked in skill we made up for in sheer volume of half-time oranges consumed. We were more likely to get scurvy than score a goal. But enough about my citrus-laden past. Let's focus on these Portuguese pioneers at Benfica. They've got ambition seeping from every pore, determination oozing from every orifice. It's almost unseemly, but by Jove, it gets results. Their founder, Cosme Damião, a man whose moustache could brush a pitch clean, is leading them with an iron fist wrapped in velvet gloves. Quite literally, he wears those gloves even in summer. And so here we are, witnessing history as Sport Lisboa takes its first breaths. One day people will say Benfica with the same reverence as they do when mentioning cheese rolling or extreme ironing. Mark my words. As for me, well, I'll be right here keeping an eye on things because if there's one thing Ryder Boff knows besides how to tie an ascot blindfolded, it's football. And now, for a whistle-stop tour of transportation calamities, successes and everything in between, we welcome our time-travelling correspondent, Polly Beep. Well, buckle up, my fellow road warriors. First stop, 1975. A London underground trains decided to play chicken with Moorgate Station, and sadly, the station won. This shocking crash has claimed 43 lives, with the driver, Leslie Newson, found responsible. Commuters prepare for a bumpy ride on the Northern City Line. Next, we're jetting to 2021. Bus drivers in Greater Manchester are on an 11-week strike, making this one of the longest in British transportation history. Go Northwest and Unite the Union are in a tug of war over labour contracts. 500 drivers are involved, so expect a ride shortage. Better start walking, folks. Now, we're steaming back to 1893. The USS Indiana has just launched, leading her class as the first battleship in the US Navy comparable to foreign ships. With an intermediate battery and heavy armour, these coastal defence behemoths are setting the stage for the US Navy's rise to power. Lastly, we're derailing to 2001. A high-speed train crash near Selby, North Yorkshire, has claimed 10 lives and injured 82. An intercity 225-passenger train collided with a Land Rover Defender and then a freight train. So, if you're planning a trip to this market town of 19,760, brace yourself for delays. In other news, the HMS Titanic has just struck an iceberg in 1912. Passengers are advised to bring life jackets and avoid the lower decks. And in 1986, the Chernobyl disaster has caused massive traffic jams in Pripyat as residents flee the radioactive city. Stay safe and remember, the best way to avoid traffic is to travel through time. This is Polly Beep, signing off. Adieu. 1997. Calamity Prenderville reports on a British-led discovery of a gamma-ray burst with an observed afterglow, marking a groundbreaking moment in astrophysics. Welcome back to Newsbank, where we're delving into the cosmic mysteries of the universe. It's 1997 and the Brits have done it again. We're not talking about a new pop sensation or a royal scandal.
but a groundbreaking discovery in the realm of astrophysics. Prepare to have your minds blown. Imagine this, a burst of gamma rays, the most powerful form of light in the universe, blasting through the cosmos like a cosmic firework. And where does this celestial spectacle occur? Not in our humble Milky Way, but in a far-off galaxy beyond the reaches of our own. This is GRB 970,228, the first gamma ray burst with an observed afterglow. Yes, you heard that right. Not only do these bursts exist, but they leave a trail of cosmic glow in their wake. Now, you might be wondering, how did the Brits contribute to this otherworldly discovery? Well, let me tell you, it's all thanks to our unwavering dedication to innovation and our insatiable curiosity for the unknown. Our team of brilliant scientists, armed with their trusty British-made telescopes, managed to capture this cosmic event as it unfolded. They then used their unparalleled knowledge of the universe and a dash of good old British ingenuity to analyse the data and make this groundbreaking discovery. Fight for Okay, so, next time you gaze up at the night sky, remember that it's not just a canvas of twinkling stars, but a vast expanse of cosmic wonders waiting to be discovered. And who knows, maybe the next big breakthrough will come from the land of fish and chips, the Queen, and now gamma ray bursts. This is Calamity Prenderville, signing off from Newsbang, where we bring you the most ridiculous reports from the world of science and technology. Goodbye. Newsbang, unravelling the ball of yarn of misinformation. Lurcy's 1939. And in the world of words, the year 1939 saw a monumental blunder in the realm of lexicography. The term Dord, a phantom word, infiltrated Webster's new international dictionary, masquerading as a synonym for density in physics and chemistry. Lexicography, the rivera discipline of dictionary compilation, was left scratching its heed. Theoretical lexicography, focusing on lexicon features and dictionary structures, was perhaps pondering the implications of this ghostly incursion. Webster's Dictionary, a bastion of the English language, stood bewildered. To shed more light on this intriguing episode, we turn to our roving reporter, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, you cheeky lexicon lovers and word nerds. It's your girl, Smithsonian Moss, hitting you with the kind of linguistic LOLs that'll make your dictionary do the Harlem shake. So, gather round, because I've got a tale that'll make your spell check weep and your autocorrect jump off a cliff. Picture it. 1939 a year when the world was teetering on the brink of chaos. And Webster's new International Dictionary was like, hold my beer. They dropped a word bomb so explosive, it made the Oxford English Dictionary look like a pamphlet written by a drunk parrot. The word, Dord. Yeah, you heard me, Dordy. It's like the love child of door and board, or what you'd name your pet dinosaur if you were high on Scrabble tiles. But here's the kicker. My alphabet aficionados. D-O-R-D wasn't even a real word. It was a typo, a blunder, a lexical faux pas of epic proportions. Some sleepy intern was probably like, density, doored, whatever, it's five o'clock somewhere, and bam. 
Doherty was born, defined as a synonym for density in physics and chemistry. I mean, who needs KGM3 when you've got Doherty, right? And let's talk about the theoretical lexicography squad, those brave souls who dive into the abyss of the lexicon to bring us the freshest, crispiest words. They were probably out there, scratching their heads, wondering if DORD was some avant-garde concept they missed while they were busy debating the plural of octopus. But wait, there's more. Webster's Dictionary, that thick book of words edited by the OG word nerd Noah Webster himself, had to eat humble pie and admit that D was a ghost word. Like, boo bitch, you ain't real. It was the lexicographical equivalent of finding out Santa Claus was just your drunk uncle in a red suit. So, what have we learned, folks? That even the dictionary can get it twisted sometimes. And that, my friends, is why we should always double-check our work, or we might end up with a D-O-R-D on our faces. That's all for tonight's Culture Report. Remember, in a world full of DRDs, be a dictionary. Waho and good night. News bang! The only news source that doesn't need a teleprompter. Etienne le decide to 2013. In a move that has left the Catholic world stunned, Pope Benedict XVI, the spiritual leader of over a billion souls, abdicated his position in 2013. This unprecedented decision marks the first papal resignation in nearly six centuries, breaking a streak that began in 1294. The 85-year-old pontiff, who succeeded Pope John Paul II in 2005, will henceforth be known as Pope Emeritus. Now, to discuss the implications of this historic moment, we turn to our resident religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Always a pleasure to be back amongst friends, even if some of you are looking a bit worse for wear. Rough night, was it? I'd prescribe a brisk constitutional and kippers for breakfast myself. Does me a world of good after a night on the shandies, let me tell you. The wife doesn't always see it that way, of course, especially when I mistake her slippers for the kippers again. Ah, marriage. What a blessed trial it is. <laughs> Speaking of trials... That reminds me of poor old Father Benedict from my last parish, St. Polycarp on the Hill. Decent enough chap, but a bit overwhelmed with the stress of the job, truth be told. Had terrible insomnia that one he was up pacing the rectory most nights. Probably all the coffee. His blood was more espresso than plasma by the end. <laughs> so one day, after a particularly rough night of no sleep, he stumbles bleary-eyed through morning mass couldn't even get through the gospel reading without dozing off twice. By the time he reached the homily, he was swaying like a palm frond in a hurricane up there. Then he turned an alarming shade of purple and keeled right over into the baptismal font. Well, we fished him out, quick enough, and he came to sopping wet, but otherwise fine. But that seemed to be the last straw for poor Father Ben. Next thing we know, he's handed in his resignation and booked a one-way ticket to a monastery in the Alps. Said he was going to live out his days making artisanal cheeses and contemplating his navel. Can't say I blame him. The stress of running a parish is enough to knock any sane person into the font eventually. <laughs> Just goes to show, even men of the cloth have their breaking point. 
Father Ben's insomnia was the papal robe unravelling his resolve. Thankfully, no one was elected Pope in his place, though. Can you imagine old Mrs. Havisham from the choir in the Vatican? We'd never hear the end of it, and the pop mobile would reek of menthol rub and cats. <laughs> so, take comfort that even in our lowest moments we haven't resorted to that. And remember Father Ben's wise words. When in doubt, eat more kippers. Truer words were never spoken at 3am over a cold cup of coffee. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to walk the dog and find my slippers. <laughs> And now a final glance at tomorrow's papers. The Times. Polish nobles in bar brawl for independence. There's a rather fetching etching of Stanislaw looking perturbed. The Guardian with Yanksland on Los Negros. Admiralty in uproar. There's a map there. You can't miss it. And the Telegraph. Deerfield decimation. French and allies on the rampage. There's a woodcut there of a musket. That's it. As we close, remember the man who stole a lorry load of steering wheels. He's still at large, but police say they're bound to catch him. He can't go straight. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.